Well, good evening. Welcome back. Good to have you here tonight. Good to see y'all. We're going to uh, open in prayer, and then uh, we're going to move to our next topic in basic doctrinal studies, and we're going to learn how to get saved. Anybody here need to get saved? That's right. Well, we're going to cover all of that tonight. So, Let's uh, open with a word of prayer and thank the Father for our blessings of being here and ask for his blessings on our study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this evening to assemble together. Father, I do thank you for basic doctrinal studies, and it's always a blessing. Every time we go through, we learn new things, and I appreciate the uh, privilege that we have to do so again here tonight. We call upon your faithfulness to set aside distractions, to open the eyes of our understanding, and I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Searching for source. Well, we'll... Give it another minute. All right. Little tricks of the trade. There we have it. All right. I think uh, a week ago we wrapped up the details of what we were looking at in uh, dealing with the barrier and and aspects there. I'm going to move on and deal with salvation tonight. We also had an issue last week where we were discussing uh, terms such as expiation and propitiation and redemption and and uh, atonement, and we realized that uh, it oftentimes it's necessary to be very careful depending on the author you're reading, and you realize that different uh, systematic theology authors may use the terms in different ways. And some may use expiation as a pure synonym for atonement, and they'll use them freely, interchangeably. Or they'll use expiation as a pure synonym for propitiation, and they'll use them freely, interchangeably. And then others uh, are not so loose with their terms, and they maintain very rigid distinctions between them. And, and so I think it's useful to examine the terms and then and really try to drill down into how the authors will, um, will make use of the terms. Let me just, I, I did bookmark one thing, and I wanted to share that with you, and then we'll uh, kind of clear the old business from last week and move on to uh, tonight. I found this in uh, 1,500 illustrations for biblical preaching. I thought, well, that's useful. Um, the, on the distinction between propitiation and expiation. And it's, I think it's useful not only for what we were talking about last week as far as the process God uses to remove barrier stones, but also for what we're dealing with here tonight in uh, just salvation itself and what does it mean to be saved and what must I do to be saved. But the difference between propitiation and expiation is not always easy to understand, even though we all experience it. Consider the case of a certain factory worker who was seriously injured on the job. After the doctors had done all they could, he was still left partially paralyzed. An investigation revealed that the company was at fault because it did not provide a safe uh, workplace nor the proper safety equipment for its employees. Thus, it was liable for the dangerous conditions that resulted in this man's injury and permanent paralysis. As we all have seen in similar situations, the court will probably award the injured man a great sum of money for his pain, suffering, and permanent injury. Once the company pays the judgment against it, it has expiated its wrongdoings. And so that's a way to to consider the term expiation. What does it mean to expiate? The demands of justice have been satisfied. The company no longer has any responsibility toward the injured man. That is expiation. But we have not dealt with how the injured man feels toward the company. He may be filled with resentment, bitterness, even hatred. He may spend the rest of his life abhorring the name of that company, even though it has been directed to give him all the money he could possibly use. The debt that the wrong incurred has been expiated or paid for, but the wrath that the wrong incurred has not been propitiated. When Christ died, he not only paid the debt for our sins, but reconciled us to God by satisfying the Father's wrath. He was both an expiation and a propitiation for our sins. All right, and so hopefully that's helpful. I found it helpful. Appreciated the aspects on both the penalty paid as well as the satisfaction or the uh, propitiation of the wrath. All right. 
So, page 31, although your notebook may be paginated slightly differently, but the section here on salvation, keeping things simple, what is salvation and how is a person saved? All right, and remember this is basics. We can come back to this again on an intermediate basis. We can come back to this again on an advanced basis and even beyond that. I mean, we can keep coming back to this again and again and again and again. I think it's useful to do so to whatever degree that you want to explore those issues. And I think it's so long as it's fruitful and so long as it equips us to do these things, I don't have any problem discussing any aspect of salvation and even um, into, into realms of things that some people find to be um, nitpicky. All right? I, I'll pick all kinds of nits when it comes to salvation because for me, the, cost, I mean, the, the, the consequences of getting it wrong is, is just unthinkable. I want to make sure that I have a clear gospel message. I want to make sure that I'm not muddle, uh, muddying the waters with when somebody's soul is at stake as far as heaven or hell is concerned. And, uh, and again, that's, we'll go as deep as folks want to get with it but we can keep it as simple as folks want to keep it. And, and ultimately speaking, when you are giving the gospel to anyone, I don't care if they're a child or an adult or whoever, keep it as simple as you possibly can. And the gospel is designed to be simple. It's designed to be free. It's designed to be easy. And uh, if you're ever criticized for preaching cheap grace, okay, um, that's their insult against the free grace camp. All right, uh, That's uh, some of the lordship guys and some of the other guys that don't like the free grace uh, theology. They will criticize us and call us cheap grace. They'll criticize Zane Hodges or they'll criticize any number of people uh, and, and call it cheap grace. Which to me I, I find interesting because uh, since grace is free, you can't get much cheaper than free, <laughs> you know. So to me, cheap grace is not a bad way to call it, but it's free grace, and which itself is somewhat redundant if you think about that. If it's not free, it's not grace. So uh, free grace is is almost um, redundant in that sense. Um, the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, "What must he do to be saved?" And I think that's a useful place to start. It's a useful passage. I think we're all familiar with it in Acts sixteen thirty. What must I do to be saved? The problem is that when we use the word do or we talk about human activity, we're going to spark some arguments with people depending on what their background is and their theology and whatnot. And some of the very hardcore folks um, will deny that we do anything at all that we don't even believe, because God believes for us. He makes us believe, right? And so depending on your approach to Calvinism and your approach to, to uh, how these things happen, uh, you may offend somebody with Acts 16.30. You may offend somebody with the idea of doing something, okay? Now, I'm okay with that, so long as we take the time, if the person's offended, I can slow down with them and say, all right, well, let me explain, and maybe try to ameliorate why you're offended. But the Bible uses the expression, what must I do to be saved? I don't have any problem using that expression. Because an unbeliever I'm talking to wants to know, well, what do they got to do? Okay, what do they got to do? And so the answer is believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And I think it's also useful if we approach the idea of doing two ways. What must I do to earn salvation? Nothing at all. Nothing I can do. If, 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 if what I mean by what must I do to earn salvation, well, then there's no answer for that because there's nothing you can do. But what must I do to non-meritoriously receive the salvation that I have not earned or deserved? Well, then, then I must do something. I must believe. And if I don't, then I'm not saved. Unless I do that, I'm not saved. And so I think it's useful to, to just sit down with a person, particularly if they're touchy on the subject. Okay? And like I say, it's, it's, it tends to be hardcore Calvinists that, that have the, the biggest struggles because when you use the word do, they want to say, well, you're not the one doing that. God's doing that. He makes you believe. Or he gives you the faith so that then you, you employ the faith that he gives you. And that's a, that's a mistranslation of, of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. All right? And we can talk about that tonight as well. Is that too small on the left? Do I need to make that bigger? That might be bigger. All right. So, in terms of deeds and righteousness, that is meritorious, not by deeds of righteousness, which we have done, right? So in terms of deeds and righteousness, there is nothing that he could do in order to earn his salvation. And, and I don't think anyone disputes that. On this, we're all agree. I mean, Calvinists, Arminians, anyone. I mean, I think, uh, 
Every branch I'm aware of of Orthodox Christianity would would defend the fact that we don't earn our eternal life. And so uh, Ephesians 2.9, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. There's not a, a saved person on the planet that can brag that they saved themselves, that has any boast in what they've done to earn salvation. Titus 3.5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So it's nothing we've done. We cannot do anything in order to earn salvation. However, in terms of human volitional activity, and that's the key, and I like using the term volitional, volitional activity, it is something we do. It's an active verb, and we are the agents of the verb. We do the believing, all right? We do the pistuo activity, and it is a volitional activity. We choose. We choose to trust or not trust. We choose to believe or disbelieve. We choose to pistuo or opistuo. Okay? In terms of human volitional activity, which is non-meritorious, there is only one thing that he could do in order to receive salvation. Okay? So to earn salvation, nothing. To receive salvation, believe. And that's the huge difference right there. So in order to receive salvation, it's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for this, just a string of passages, including Acts 16.31, what must I do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, you and your household. Obviously, any member of the household can also believe. Everyone can believe, uh, assuming they're old enough to understand the issues and they, they apprehend the, the offer that's being made. Uh, that uh, age of accountability you know, can come older and younger depending on the child, but uh, when they understand that they are a sinner on the road to hell and that this provision has been made on their behalf, they can trust in Christ to receive eternal life. And uh, we can appreciate that. John 3.16, of course, 3.18, 3.36, all those three passages there in John chapter 3, we use them again and again and again and again. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes, it is necessary. If you don't believe, then you don't receive the gift. Whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Okay? So, you know, in some strange way, for the folks that try to defend the case that God Himself is the one doing the believing, well, then you have to go to this verse and say, well, then God Himself is the one that receives eternal life, right? Right? Because he's the whosoever who believes. Anyway, I don't, I don't tend to get very far with people when I try to take some of these approaches. Um, but it's whosoever believes, okay? And that's a whosoever. And that's, uh, that's a, a thrill in my mind. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe, notice, that's the criteria. Do they believe or do they not believe? And so long as they continue not believing, well... He's already in a judged condition. That's the default. That's our total depravity in Adam. They were born that way. All right? And that's, uh, that's another fun thing to talk about with people that want to talk about being born that way. All right? Born sinners in Adam. How about that? And uh, he's been judged already because he does not believe, he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. All right? And so just keep it simple. Take it to these verses and just throw it right out there. All right? And uh, so long as they continue to not believe, they're in that lost position in Adam. The moment, that split second, that microsecond that they do believe, they have that eternal life, see, forever. And uh, the, the blessings of security, the blessings of eternal security, the delight to know that if there comes a time later in their life that they turn rebellious and they stop trusting christ or they decide that they don't want to be saved anymore well that's too bad for them <laughs> all right because because uh, jesus christ is not so faithless if we are faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself and that moment the vilest offender who truly believes right that moment from jesus a pardon receives and, and that's forever Okay, and that's uh, that's vital that we recognize that as well. So that's uh, verse 18, and then of course verse 36. This is a fun uh, contrast because this is the the verse that contrasts pistuo on the positive basis with uh, with patho, with the persuasion. 
that happens in the in the process of evangelizing. And I want to talk about that tonight as well when we discuss evangelism and ambassadorship. Okay, those are the other subsections here of this of, of the notebook. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And and truly, at its basic level, the gospel itself is a command. God desires for all to be saved. And when you don't get saved, you are disobedient. All right, But it's also a failure to be persuaded in the passive tense of, of patho, when, when, uh, God, when the gospel is persuading in that work of the Father to draw and the work of the Son to draw. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Okay? And so there is a persuasion that happens. One, I think the best thing we want to focus on in our evangelism is the work of God in doing that persuading. We can become partners with the Holy Spirit so long as we recognize the Holy Spirit is the one that's convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That it's the Father is, is drawing, it's the Son who is drawing. This persuasion is happening. And until it, until it finishes its persuasion... Um, we're not going to bear any kind of fruit. We can plant some seeds, but we're not going to bear any kind of fruit until that persuasion has taken hold. All right? So pay attention to that as well. That, that's uh, that's the, the tandem of pistuo with patho. And I think both verbs are important to understand. Pistuo is believing, right? Placing your trust, placing your confidence in an object. But patho, patho is the verb that speaks of persuasion, being persuaded being persuaded okay and that's that's huge because no one ever believes in nothing no one ever believes until they are persuaded in the faithfulness of what it is that they are trusting in the in 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 ultimately in god's eternal faithfulness and that's why when you believe in christ it's infinitely valuable all right any questions on that that tandem of of believe okay warren let's get do we have the microphone ready for uh, questions on that, Radley, you going to run that for me? Thank you, sir. The tandem of pistuo and patho. Uh, <clears throat> when you're talking to a legalist that's uh-huh. insisting that you perform deeds of righteousness in order to be saved, uh, what set of deeds of righteousness do they suggest you need to do? <laughs> in order to be saved. And doesn't it kind of put them on the back foot if you uh, insist on them describing what it is you're supposed to do to be saved? <laughs> it kind of puts the ball back in their court and kind of puts them... And, and I noticed, though, in the, at least the legalists I've spoken to, as well as the ones that are illustrated in the Scripture, I've noticed they always pick out the things they're good at, <laughs> and they never include the things they're horrible at, um, in other words, if they thrive in this particular thing, well, then naturally that makes their list, okay? Uh, when Jesus pointed out to the rich young ruler, you know, give away all your money and you'll have eternal life, uh, well, then that, he just couldn't handle that, you know? And I think the whole point in that story is that if we're trying to make a works-based approach to earning eternal life, then sooner or later we're going to hit something that we just fall short on. And so, uh, yeah, uh, so the legalists you're talking to, or I'm talking to, or anyone, you know, they'll, they'll highlight the things they're good at. If they, if they never miss a prayer meeting, they'll make prayer meeting a, a mark of spirituality. Or if they're, they've been a Sunday school teacher for 30 years, well, then obviously it's the Sunday school teachers that are the most rewarded believers at the, at the judgment seat of Christ, or, or, or what have you. Um, you know, pastors that have preached 5,000 sermons or more are the ones that are going to be, you know, the, the top rewarded believers at the judgment seat of Christ. People will always pick the things that, that they're thriving in in that regard, and they're going to ignore the things maybe that they're, that they're weak in in that regard. Um, but Scripture says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. And so to delineate a, a subset of, of some of those is, is almost beside the point, because there's no, there's no works of righteousness, which we have done. Yeah, good question. Appreciate that. Well, yeah, you hear about the Ten Commandments, but whatever connects the, the Decalogue to salvation, you know, the Exodus doesn't, or Deuteronomy doesn't, nothing does. Again, that uh, thank you, Randy. That uh, these passages here, non-meritorious. Now, the thing about doing something, to do something that has no intrinsic value, I think it's a simple concept. 
Maybe it's because I do so much that has no intrinsic value. But uh, there are folks that that they 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 can't grasp the concept that doing something has no worth built in. And so they, they have this thing that, well, if I believe, that means I've earned something. No, you've done something, but you haven't earned anything because you've done something that's non-meritorious. You've done something that has no intrinsic reward connected to it or, or, or benefit or, or what I'm trying to say is it's not an intrinsically worth anything. Believing is not, in itself, believing is not intrinsically worth anything because I can believe a lie. The act of believing is not intrinsically worthy. You have a question on that or a statement? Microphone over here, please. We're going to keep you running tonight, Radley. Just a comment. I've met an awful lot of people who think that heaven is a reward. So if they have that idea, then the the idea of working for the reward is sound. I can see that. Yeah, if, if heaven is the reward for believing, yeah, as opposed to the residency with, with the Lord and the, the estate for those that are righteous, I can see that. But I can show you in Romans that uh, faith is not a work. <laughs> so to the, to the one who does not work but believes, I mean, that verse right there takes faith off the table of anything that, that is counted as a work. Yeah. Thank you. Now, the verb believe and the noun faith. The verb believe and the noun faith. The problem is in English is they don't look at all alike, right? Believe and faith. And they come from entirely different sources in the, the uh, mongrel language that is Egypt. I mean, that is English. Uh, believe and faith. Okay? But in Greek, pistuo and pistis are clearly cognate. They're clearly connected. Pistuo is the verb to believe, and pistis is the noun to, uh, for faith or to have belief. These are terms that describe the human volitional activity designed, designated by God as the one and only non-meritorious mechanism by which his grace gift of salvation is accepted and received. Now, did God have to make faith the basis? Could he have assigned something else as the basis? Sure, he could have made whatever criteria he wanted as the basis for the acceptance of the gift. But when you, when you consider the nature of salvation as a gift, and when you consider the nature of, of, of what God is offering freely on a grace basis, then faith is the most natural a concept for the reception of a gift in the sense that it is trusting God for that which he is promising to, to offer. See, So it is the human volitional activity design, designated, designed by God as the one and only non-meritorious mechanism by which his grace gift is accepted and received. Accepted and received. And I try to use as many biblical terms as I can. Accepted is, is a biblical term. Received is a biblical term. And uh, there too, you'll find people that'll get offended and they'll split hairs with you and they'll say, well, I didn't receive Christ. He received me. Well, John says, as many as received him, to them they gave the right to become children of God, even those who believed in his name. So it's a, it's a biblical use. I'm okay with receiving Christ. I'm okay with accepting Christ. All right, believing is a human volitional activity. It is even called a work. Yeah, this is this happens when you tweak the size sometimes. Um, it's even called a work, and and this I, I wonder how much is tongue in cheek, how much of this is just language of accommodation as Jesus is responding to his critics as they keep wanting to know, well, what work shall we do? What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And so he says, all right, you want to work? Here's, what, here's a work you can do. Believe in him whom he sent. <laughs> all right? And so it is a passage, it's the only one I'm aware of in the, in the Scripture, whereby believing is called a work, but I think Jesus is using it as an accommodation in the context of, of the critics that he's speaking to here in, in John chapter 6. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. All right? You want to work for your salvation? That's your verse. Believe in him whom he has sent. And then uh, you can be as tongue-in-cheek as Jesus is because that's the only verse you got to work with that has salvation on a, on a works basis. 
Um, verse 28 and verse 29 there. But salvation by grace through faith is specifically defined as a non-meritorious work. And so even if you grant that it is a work, it is a non-meritorious work. It is not something that one can boast in. It is a work where, whereby you, you simply acknowledge that God's done the work and all the boasting is in Him. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that's useful as well, to study the, the prepositions, to study the instrumental use of grace, and to study the vehicle as the through faith, as the mechanism, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. By the way, see if I can get this thing to work. The uh, uh, That, can I highlight that? I have not learned how to use my pen as well as I need to. But this, um, that term right there, all right? It's that 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 people want to point back to faith, okay? And when they use, they, they try to say that, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, that is the faith, is not of yourselves. It is the faith that is the gift of God, they're abusing the Greek language. They're abusing the grammar, the syntax, and the vocabulary of that entire verse. All right? That is neuter, and it does not point back to the feminine noun of faith. Okay? And grace, it does not point back to grace. It, it points back to the totality of that expression. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that, that divine design, is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. All right. So grammatically, if you ever encounter somebody that tries to tell you that faith is the gift of God, that God gives you the faith, this verse does not sustain that. This verse does not support that in any way. All right. Because faith is a feminine noun, pistis is a feminine noun, and that is a neuter pronoun. Yes, sir? What is it specifically about the Greek there that makes it very obvious that it is actually going back to the whole phrase and not just the faith? Is it because that's... It's the, the genders of the pronouns. Okay. Yes, the genders of the pronouns. So, um, and, and it's, it's, it's an area as English speakers are very weak because we don't have a very genderized language, you know, other than uh, animals we sometimes refer to as he or she or people or he or she. And pretty soon that's going to get outlawed too, probably. And Anyway, um, but... Uh, Spanish or French or other languages that are that are very gender specific, you have to be very clear. This is La Mesa. It's not El Meso. It's La Mesa. You know, and and the chairs and the doors and everything. It's La Puerta. It's it's the every noun has a specific gender, masculine or feminine, right? In Spanish, in Greek, it's masculine or feminine or neuter. And, and so then the prepositions have to match. Okay, uh, so a white house is a Casablanca. Okay, and, and it matches in the, the adjective matches with the with the noun. Okay, we break those rules in Austin. If uh, or did they rename the street Arroyo Seca? They renamed it finally. Okay, man, felt like a moron in a town with a grammatically incorrect uh, road like Arroyo Seca. All right, um, and so as you're reading through this and you're reading, it's by grace, Chorus. You have been saved, or you are a having been saved one, as a paraphrastic participle, through faith, pistis, and that not of yourselves. And, the, and that is not a feminine that, it is a neuter that. Great, thank you. Okay? You're welcome. All right. As far as... Um, I didn't get into it here in these notes, or did I miss it? The three different ways that the Bible uses sozo. The reason why we call salvation soteriology is because of the verb sozo, the noun uh, soteria. The uh, Let me shrink that back down again. Um, aspects in the way that the New Testament uses the verb. And in fact, in ways less commonly than we think, uh, as far as we use it much more commonly, uh, the idea of being saved, meaning uh, delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred in the kingdom of his beloved son, receiving eternal life, right? That moment of salvation, okay? 
Uh, for me, it was a Saturday morning in 1973, and my mother sat down at the table, and she walked me through 1 John chapter 5. She gave me the gospel, and, and at that moment is when I trusted in Christ, and I received eternal life. And I know it was a Saturday because it was the next morning, Sunday morning, that she brought me to the pastor and introduced me as his newest brother, and I thought it was so strange that this old man was now my brother, and I needed to learn some of those doctrines. But it was So that's what we think of in salvation. Getting saved means... I'm not going to go to hell when I die. And now I have eternal life. And it's that moment, it's that regeneration moment okay, of new birth. Well, that's how we most frequently use the term. It's not how the New Testament most frequently uses the term. Because okay? there's three ways that the New Testament uses the term. That's the first. The more common way, it uses the term in, in an experiential sense of being delivered of being saved from the power of sin, of being rescued from sin temptations and, and the way that the Word of God does its work. That it's with humility we receive the Word implanted, the Word that is then able to save your souls. All right? And that's post-salvation. Uh, that's that's uh, the, the phase two, as we call it. It's the experiential application. Right? And then the third way the New Testament uses the term is when we are saved from the very presence of sin, when we are brought into glory, we're brought into heaven, we, we uh, lay down mortality, we put on immortality, and we're face to face with Jesus Christ. So uh, my mother, for example, in heaven, she's already experienced that. She's, she's done with sin, okay, because she's laid down that body of, that body of sin. And so uh, usually, uh, it's usually the peace, saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin, and saved from the presence of sin, is typically a very simple way to explain that to somebody. Just use the peace. Saved from the penalty of sin. That's the, the Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's off the table now. I'm delivered from the penalty of sin. We all are, I trust. Uh, we're saved from the penalty of sin. That's that conversion moment that's that we typically think of. But that's kind of the minority as far as the, the New Testament is concerned. It much more addresses the way that, that the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and our, our walk in Christ, how we, we need to be saved from the power of sin. All right, And that's making use of the Holy Spirit. Walk by means of the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What a promise. Okay, That power of sin is... Uh, no longer has to have dominion over us. It only does if we let it. We can appreciate that as well. All right. Any questions on that? We understand the three ways the Bible and the New Testament uses saved. In fact, what does uh, Hodges say about the... Didn't he have a, a statement about the use of sozo and... Oh, and that's another thing. That's right. That's a fourth category. It's just rescue from a physical danger. Right, yeah, being pulled back from stepping off a curb. Steve uh, Arnold saved me from stepping off a curb in, in Kenya. <laughs> so No, Zambia. When uh, I was looking to the right to see if any cars were coming, and, and uh, he pulled me back and said, they drive on the other side of the road here. <laughs> Before you step off the curb, you better uh, look the other direction and make sure. Anyway. Uh, you're right, yeah. That's the fourth category of saved. That's just simply rescued from physical dangers, saved from uh, uh, harm. All right, evangelism, our next subtopic. If we can cover evangelism and ambassadorship tonight, I think we'll do real well. Uh, there is a spiritual gift of evangelist, and uh, of course Doug claims that gift, and we've got other evangelists in the, in the church, gifted and trained and uh, serving in uh, those realms of ministry. Uh, the responsibility to bring good news belongs to every believer. The responsibility is all of ours. We all get to euangelizamai. We all get to evangelize. And uh, it's a privilege. It's a blessing. It's a, it's, a, it's a description of beautiful feet, as it were. Romans here citing Isaiah 52. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And this goes back to the statement I made earlier. Nobody ever believes in nothing. Even when you believe in a lie, there is an object to your pistuo. You must, there has to be an object or you're not accomplishing the verb of pistuo. You don't, you're not exhibiting the activity of pistis. No one ever believes in nothing. We get mocked sometimes for blind faith and just trusting in nothing. That's not the fact. 
All right? There is plenty of evidence, and there are undoubted, there are, there are clear promises, and we are trusting in the clear promises from the one who cannot lie. No one believes in nothing to receive eternal life or anything else. And so how will they believe if they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And these are some of the prerequisites, of course, for getting saved. And uh, in, in my case, it was my mother was the good news messenger. In other cases, it's other people. And you have your stories to tell, and that's great. In some cases, it's a, it's a Gideon Bible left in a drawer. It's, it's a written record, or it's, it's something heard on the radio. But there is an agency there is an agency. There's no one that just sat in a tree and it popped into his head. Okay, Things which I have not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man. What God has revealed, what God has provided. See, the gospel is not, we're not going to come to eternal life through our own philosophy, our own daydreaming, our own thinking about it. It requires a content of a message. Information must be conveyed. We want to be clear on that. Okay? And this is where much of the argument comes in our circles when we debate and we hash out certain issues. And I think it's useful. I don't begrudge the discussion. I do, however, begrudge where the discussion has gone and how the discussion has been abused by people. And I may describe that tonight too, and I have no problem describing that on video, on audio, or whatever. Because some of the, the anger directed against Zane Hodges I find reprehensible. And it just makes me makes me want to puke. All right. Um, but the information that we communicate, we've got more information now than any dispensation has ever had. You know, I mean, Adam and Eve were looking for the seed of the woman. That's all their information that they had from Genesis three fifteen onward, right? And then gradually, more information was made available. More information. Eventually, we learned that it was the line of Shem, and we learned it was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We learned it was the tribe of Judah. The coming Messiah would come from Judah. We learned that it was a, a virgin-born son of David. Uh, it was going to be born in Bethlehem. We we started to learn more information about uh, sixty nine sevens after the issuing of a decree. I mean, by the time Jesus was born, it was pretty vivid. And obviously, now that all these things are fulfilled, we were without excuse. We have the past completed action. We've got Old Testament, New Testament. We've got the fullest gospel message possible as far as preaching good news. And let me tell you, Christ is coming. That was good news message. But Christ has come. That's better good news message, okay? The, the tetelestai, it is finished. That's better good news message as far as what was accomplished on the cross. So um, the blessings that we have to be able to convey information, I think, is, is vital. But uh, in this section, I want to make sure that we don't confuse the information we communicate with the believing that, that takes place and the object of the believing that takes place. And that's where I think folks get off track, all right? And so well, I'll try to keep us on track here tonight. How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So, um, the key here is to understand the preacher. As Acts 8 makes clear that the entire church is called to be evangelizers and preachers. Acts chapter 8, verse 4 and verse 5. Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. You know, it's interesting. I think it's where Paul gets to places he's never been before and he finds there's believers already there. Well, how'd they get there? Who led them to Christ? How did this happen? You know, and I think it's, uh, it's interesting. The great New Testament passages on preparation and readiness relate evangelism to all believers. Who should have their feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace? Just Doug or all of us? Every believer needs to be wearing the full armor of God. And uh, every believer ought to be ready to give an answer, to give an account for the hope that is within you, right? That's, that's, uh, that's all of us. 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Is this only the evangelist expected to, to fall? No, it's every believer. Every believer. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you. And, uh, you know, if somebody asks you, don't, don't take them to your pastor, don't take them to Doug, or don't say, well, let me find an evangelist for you to explain all this. No, they asked you. This is your open door opportunity. This is your fruit. You tell them. You give an account for the hope that is within you. See, 
And, uh, and I've had it happen. I've had people come to me and say, uh, yeah, so-and-so, here's my friend, and they, they've been asking me a lot of questions about heaven. Can you tell them how to get saved? You know, and uh, so I do. In grace, I do. Of course, I want them to get saved. But then later on, I have words, you know, I'm going to say, hey, buddy, this, is, this was your crown. Why did you let me take your crown? All right. Um, let me back up a little bit. Have you read Lewis Berry Schaefer on true evangelism? Anyone? It's been out a long time. I know several of us have. If you have not read it, I recommend it. All right? It's got countless editions, and it's, it's available. Uh, there's PDFs of it on the Internet. I mean, you can find it anywhere. You can get it at half price books for cheap. Um, but the basic thrust of, of true evangelism is that we're not the evangelist. It's the Holy Spirit who's the true evangelist. All right? So true evangelism is watching what the Holy Spirit does. And then being on hand and, and being ready to use your words when, uh, when those questions are being asked, when the readiness is there, okay? Because the persuasion, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, all right? That persuasion has to happen. And so the, the, the basic gist of true evangelism is let's become uh, prayer warriors in the meantime. Let's pray for, for our, our targets, the unbelievers that we're praying for, for them to be convicted, for them to be drawn, for them to to be humbled, for them to be repentant, for them, for the Holy Spirit to do such a work of drawing them that they will give the gospel a fair hearing. And pray for that and plead for, for their heart to be prepared to receive that message. And then pray for yourself to be ready to verbalize that when their heart preparation is there. Okay, And so you have like hand and glove. You've got the two processes and they're simultaneously happening. And if you're not the evangelist that makes it happen, that's fine too. Say, because you're a part of that process in the in the prayer ministry on that in that regard, and uh, so it's it's a simple book and it's marvelous. Um, I intend someday to write a sequel to that. I, I would like to write uh, true shepherding. I would like to write the role of intercessory prayer on the on the pastor's behalf in the shepherding of a flock because it's Jesus Christ. Uh, in evangelism, it's the Holy Spirit, but in shepherding, it's Jesus Christ who's the good shepherd. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And so the, the, the best role that the pastor can have in true shepherding is similar to the best role an evangelist can have in, in true evangelism, is to become that fellow worker with what the Holy Spirit's doing in evangelism or become a fellow worker in what Jesus Christ is doing in shepherding. And then be an intercessory prayer warrior and be on hand and be ready to start using those words and teaching the doctrine and, and, and doing all the hands-on shepherding that has to happen, but only in cooperation with what Jesus Christ is doing in his hands-on work. Say, Anyway, that will be my, my sequel to true evangelism and um, as the Lord wills in, uh, in a writing project that in his will may happen someday. All right. Um, last thing I'll say on evangelism is the process or is the information that's conveyed. Okay. The information that's conveyed because there are folks that, 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 I mean, we have different verses, right? And we, we, we've used different passages and we have our favorites and we use the ones that we're comfortable with and we use the ones we like. Um, some folks love the John 3.16 or the John 3 verses. Other folks like uh, Romans. They like to use the Romans road. They'll use Romans 3, Romans 6, Romans 10. And, or uh, even some terribly will use, behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, awful. Not a salvation verse. But people have come to eternal life with bad verses. Okay? Uh, I don't advocate sloppy evangelism, but uh, I do... Um, recommend that when you have the passages that you employ um, and the ones that you're, you're, you're effective with and comfortable with, and great, use those, all right? And, and let's not get critical of other people that are using other ones, all right? Some people love uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at that, 1 Corinthians 15. And they will take this to the extent that if you use anything except this, then you're doing it wrong. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. All right. Verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Okay. Well, there you go. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And they kind of stop there. They say, that's the gospel right there. Evangel. He died for our sins and he rose from the dead. 
Okay? The gospel in what, nine words, something like that? Um, well, then there you go. Okay? But they kind of, yeah, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead. Well, what about he was buried? That's also in the verse. Why'd you leave that out? Okay? So we want to be relaxed. And I think that the, the, the group that, that condemned Hodges to, to wickedness, they, they'd failed, I think, in this, in this application. All right? Because they absolutely insisted that if you have to use this passage and if you don't, you're not evangelizing. And they missed the point of what Hodges was writing from John chapter 20. Anyway, that's a, that's a different issue there too. Um, so then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, he appeared to more than 500 and so forth. And, and so the question is, what is the information we, we provide to the unbeliever as we are uh, providing them the persuasion so as to trust in Christ? Okay, you understand? That's a different question. I am giving them good news. It is good news that the Lamb of God has taken away the sin of the world. That is good news. It is good news that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That is good news. I want to give them good news. But are they trusting in facts or are they believing in Christ to receive eternal life? And this this becomes the, the issue, right? And so this is where I think some folks handle it better and some folks don't handle it so well. While at the same time they criticize others for not handling it so well. <laughs> All right? I just want to make sure we're solid on this. Okay? Um, so, as you... And, and obviously, the more time you have to talk to a person, then the more information you're going to give them. You know? But if, it, if, if you don't have that much time, and if you only give them the gospel once, or if it's, you know, what is the... What must they know in order to be persuaded? Okay? And that, I think, is going to be different for different people. Different for me, different from... And Pastor Cliff and I have talked about this. Cliff Beveridge of Lost Pines Bible Church. In some respects, it's not going to hell when you die. People are scared of hell. Going to heaven is a positive motivation. Other people don't even pay attention to heaven or hell. They're wrapped up over certain sins. And the idea of sin forgiveness is a big deal. For other people, it's reconciliation. The idea to be reconciled to the Father is so crucial. They've got a, they've got a dysfunctional family. They, they, they don't even know who their father is. They, the idea that God loves them, that gets their attention. Somebody loves me? God loves me? I can be reconciled to a heavenly Father? And, and, and so, depending on the unbeliever and where they are and what they're being convicted of and what they're struggling with, any number of doctrines, any number of principles might be the information necessary whereby that seals the deal. That just persuades them. All right? Done? And so the idea, whatever it is that persuades them, the point is, eight people persuaded by eight different things, but all eight of them are believing in Jesus Christ. There is only one object. There is only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. All right, Doug? I'm burned for my sister. And mm-hmm. what must a Mormon <laughs> know to be truly saved? Because she believes in a Jesus. Yeah, but Mormon's got a different Jesus, and that's a different, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's... In some cases, it's not only what must they know, but what must they stop thinking they know? <laughs> and what must they unlearn in the lies that they previously thought they knew? That's a good question. you know. But all unbelievers must know that they're sinners. All unbelievers must know that, that, that the, the, the provision's been made, that Christ is the offer of eternal life, that is trusting in Christ for eternal life. Yep. Alone. Yeah, that's it. Christ alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. Right, up here, please, for Robert. And so, as long as we're clear, the, the good news is one thing. The information, the good news that we preach is one thing. But the object of the faith is always Christ. I want to be clear on that. Yes, sir? Well, you said that there might be eight different ways of, eight different passages, eight different ways. Well, that's true all through the Bible. The multiple different ways different things are taught mm-hmm. because different people's brains work in different ways. Mm-hmm. So for flexibility, when we 
to, it's not up there now, but it says to be ready to give an answer. Mm-hmm. One potted uh, system isn't going to fit everybody that you've talked to. That's right. And being ready means you should have a lot of different answers so that you can figure out what they want, uh-huh. what they need to have to believe. And then you're going to be a true evangelist. I think so. I think it's functional. I think it's useful to have a wide spectrum of, of approaches that you can take and that you're comfortable taking just depending on who you're coming across. That's right. Yes, sir. I just couldn't agree more and say you nailed it by saying it's going to be very um, individualistic. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very according to the Holy Spirit. I have so many times in the past have messed up in just talking with whether it's a waiter or waitress or somebody else and just saying, here's the facts. Do you believe that? Okay, you're saved. Right. And how wrong of me just to say, I mean, it says even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons, well, yeah, yes. they believe he died on the cross. Yeah. You Catholics can believe, believe that he died on the cross for their sins. Yeah. But they're trusting in the Virgin, in the Queen of Heaven. Yeah, it's not like yeah. you said. It is not believing in the facts, but it is actually that next step of, I, I not always, but sometimes more led to say, have you received that gift? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Have you come to that point of receiving Christ? And, right. But anyway, yeah. Also, I think I'm I'm more gracious uh, and relaxed related to um, insufficient information in some respects. If if a person does not understand eternal security, can they still be saved? Okay, and I've had people, I've had pastors tell me, no, if you don't understand eternal security, you're not truly saved. Or if you do not understand the deity of Christ, that was my issue. I did not know about the deity of Christ. My mother led me to Christ, and I knew that I was a sinner, and I knew that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I, I, I believed in Jesus to receive eternal life. And then months later, I'm in a Sunday school class, and my Sunday school teacher was telling me that Jesus was God. And that God became man, and that he was God-man. And it just blew my mind. I had no idea that Jesus was God. I knew he was my Savior. And so we got home from church. My mother said, well, what did you learn in Sunday school? I said, well, my, Sunday, my teacher got everything wrong. My teacher said that Jesus was God. And my mother said, no, your teacher's right. Jesus is God. And, and you know, I thought I told you that. And, well, I didn't hear that. What do you mean? So later I learned, and this is why I think until you have eternal life, you're not equipped to digest spiritual truth anyway. All right? Now, I had a pastor that told me, a fellow down in Houston, that told me that I was not saved when I thought I was saved, that I only got saved later once I understood the deity of Christ. Because earlier I, I believed in the wrong Jesus. That because I didn't know that Jesus was God, I was trusting in a different Jesus, and so somehow that's a, a cursed gospel or something. Anyway, I thanked him uh, for his opinion, but I, I, I disagree. I believe that I believe that unbelievers get saved in, in with an awful lot of ignorance, with an awful lot of misunderstandings, and then in the process of their growth, they start to learn all the things they didn't know before they were saved, and that's fine. That's very fine. So that's uh, the thing there. You know, he was, uh, Mary was a virgin. Did you know that? That he was virgin born? If the, well, what if you didn't know that? Can you still get saved? You know, he was born in Bethlehem. Did you know that? You know, he was, uh, well, yeah. But if you didn't know that, can you still get saved? Okay. You're not believing in a different Jesus if, you're just, if you don't have all the information about him. To, to what you do know, okay, that's the, uh, that's the pattern there. And so Zane Hodges wrote an article, well, if you don't know this, are you still saved? If you don't know this, if you don't know this, if you don't know this. If you're trusting in Christ, do you receive eternal life? And he was sparking, I think, a lot of thought. Daring people to, to stand, take a stand and say, you can trust in Christ and not be saved. Well, why is that? Because you believed in Christ. So based upon what? Or can you believe in Christ if just because you don't know certain facts or because you don't know whatever? And then I think where he crossed the line, and in some people's minds, um, they really they, they, they blew a head gasket when he said, what if you don't know that Jesus died on the cross? What if you don't know that? What if all, you, you're on a desert island and a bottle washes up and you re, pull out this note and it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? And that person does not know that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. But they believe in Jesus Christ. 
and they starve to death on the island. Do they go to heaven or do they go to hell? Okay? And, and what Zane Hodges was trying to promote is the principle that our faith is in Christ. The object of faith is Christ. The information is, is, is what it is, but the object is Christ. And boy, there was a crowd that just went bonkers. And they created a, an emotional term. They, they, they crafted a term called crossless gospel. And I think when they did that, they, sadly, they took, and you know what I'm talking about, they went to a, um, they took a term called crossless gospel. And they popularized the issue that was originally in the theological journal among pastors that were debating things. And they popularized it and they put it out to church members in the pew and they said, look at what this evil man is doing. He's taking the cross out of the gospel. And, and he did no such thing. All right? In any event, that's my, uh, that's my critique of, of the crossless gospel. I think it was an emotional, unnecessary slandering of of Zane Hodges for the purpose that Zane Hodges was putting forth. In any event, he's in heaven now, so that's the good news, is he's in heaven now, and so uh, all of that is uh, passed for him. With microphone to the front row, please. I think, well, a lot of the people I encounter, they have a lot of the information. The narrative is very well known amongst people today. Mm-hmm. We're so well educated but they've just been told that that's all made up. Right. And there's no way that we can actually believe this actually happened to this, if this guy even walked the earth. Mm-hmm. And that's more what I encounter, at least here in Austin. It's right. pretty popular. Well, if he was a real person or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they've, they've, they know about Jesus dying for people's sins. They just think some guy in the 4th century made it up to mm-hmm. get control of the government or something. Correct? Well, no, that's easy enough to answer because, I mean, on an apologetic basis, you can you can answer all of that. And yeah. and, and pretty quickly you're going to find that they don't want to hear those answers right. anyway. They, they, they're accepting the lie they want to swallow. And, yeah, yeah I've encountered the same people. You don't want to look at documents that existed in the first, second, and third centuries which <laughs> right. agree with the doctrine we be- were teaching here. Mm-hmm. So they just, it seems like they're more using it as an excuse. And I think a lot of it is they, they've heard the narrative, they've gotten all the information, but a lot of the Christians they've encountered, I don't think they've met the witness. Oh, well, that may be too. Doing it in their own power, and a lot of legalism, I think, is really popular. Well, quite possibly, a lot of the Christians they've encountered are nominal and not true. You know, they're, they're culturally Christian that's based what, on their yeah, membership I mean. and their upbringing and whatever, but they themselves are not yet regenerate. I recommend Rodney Stark, by the way. Uh, all of the Rodney Stark books, the later ones are better than the earlier ones. You want to know why? Because he got saved. And in the process, when he got saved, the earlier books are still good. They're good history. They're good information and whatnot. But he was a cultural Lutheran, and he had his actual conversion event actually improved his writing, uh, improved his perspective for Christianity, his perspective for truth, and, and all the rest. So, um, yeah, that's why uh, Victory of Reason is excellent, and, and, and some of these other things are. But the later books are so much better because I believe he had a. I read somewhere on a, on a uh, website he described his actual conversion experience. That's right. All right, well, we're going to have to wrap this up. Uh, the last section of this is ambassadorship, and you know that's our role. We are all ambassadors, and uh, it's part of the ministry that we all have. We've been entrusted with that ministry of reconciliation, and we are representing the kingdom in this lost and dying world, so we have an ambassador function. The Father's making the appeal through us, so we all have that, uh, that role. I don't think we'll come back to that next week. Well, next week, actually, uh, no evening class next week because of the potluck. We've got the two morning services. We have the potluck dinner, and then we'll have the uh, our third ser- uh, service will come that afternoon at 1.45. So there's no 6 o'clock hour next week. I'm glad I remembered that. All right, we'll come back in two weeks then for, uh, for parapetology when we have our next uh, 6 o'clock service. We will have, in the afternoon, we're going to have a prayer time and a fellowship time and a poimenike demonstration uh, with Pastor Cliff and Pastor Dan and possibly. We're still not clear yet if, if folks are going to be able to come up from Corpus Christi or not. And so it's at least a two-church service next week. Uh, Lost Pines is joining us. Uh, we'll have two pastors and two flocks in one building next week. It's going to be fun. We've, we've done this three times now, I think. 
So uh, Pastor Cliff is bringing this flock in. We'll have a Lost Pines Bible Church and Austin Bible Church right here together. And then if Corpus Christi Bible Church can can join us, and that'll make the third the third church. And so we're praying for that. Pray for Pastor Dan too. Today, I haven't heard. I've been I've been watching Facebook. I've been checking my phone for text messages. Um, I don't know what what happened in Corpus other than he taught his sixth out of the six. Have you heard anything? Uh, this was the sixth of the candidating Sundays. So maybe uh, they had a vote today. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they're going to hold off and do a vote next week, or I don't know what they're going to do. Maybe they're just not going to vote at all. You know, they just by acclamation say this is our shepherd, or or not. I don't know. But we're praying for Dan and we're praying for that flock, and God is uh, God is so faithful. So appreciate that. Let's close with prayer. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for salvation. And Father, I so rejoice that it is free and yet not without cost. Father, the price was infinite and the, and cost the, the life of your son, your beloved son, Father. You shrouded him in darkness and poured out your wrath. I thank you, Father, for the propitiation and expiation, all, everything that was accomplished by our Savior. And then when he, decri- when he cried out to tell us, die, it is finished. It, it was finished and it stands finished. It's eternally finished. And when we trust in Christ, we are appropriating that finished work to our account. I thank you for the blessings that we have to study these things, to study to show ourselves approved. I pray that we'll be better equipped to give the gospel to this lost and dying world. That we don't confuse the good news message with the object of faith. That when we uh, present the good news, we're still pointing them to the object, and the object is Christ. So, Father, I pray that we would be very clear when we, when we uh, speak to the lost, that we let them know that when they are without Christ, they are without life. That he who has the Son has life. And I pray that we uh, are uh, as biblical as possible in our evangelism. And I thank you again for this class. And I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.